Hi, everybody. I'm really um, delighted to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled that I match everything up here on the stage. <laughs> we know that how important that is. <laughs> Make sure I have my supply up here, something to drink. Some things never change. My name is Allison, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Hello, family. I am so nervous. I always start shaking right about now, but I think it'll stop a little, a little later. I want to thank the committee for inviting me here. This is a, a tremendous honor. What a gift for me and um, the, some of the people in my life. I, I want to acknowledge some of the friends that came up from Atlanta to, um, to be here and support me. I have a couple of friends here who have known me since I got sober, and um, that's real important. And um, one of my sponsorettes is here. She didn't know till last night that that's what I called them. Um, so she's been doo-wopping ever since. <laughs> I also want to introduce um, the love of my life, the woman of my dreams, fire of my loins, <laughs> and, and somebody who I could not be here without, and that's my lover, Rebecca Chi, She's right down here. You know, we all have to um, have a lot of support, <clears throat> and, I, and I feel really uh, blessed that I have the kind of support that I do. My love is here, and she takes care of all the things, you know, that acquired um, ineptitude that we get. All of a sudden, I don't know how to go get myself a drink. Or... <laughs> and she's very sweet the whole time. She spends the whole weekend going, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. That's love. That really is love. I, um, I am a little bit nervous about being called a spiritual speaker. And, and I told Susan... Um, earlier, you know, I, you heard my tape. I, I've slept with all the wrong people. I've been in jail. I've, I, um, I've done all manner of things sober, and, and yet y'all keep calling me the spiritual speaker, and I can't quite figure it out, you know. Uh, I'm going to tell you my story sooner or later. Um, I tend to stall. I think it's really hard. It's, this is hard. Maybe I'll tell, you a I'll tell you a story. I'll start out with a story. This is a story that is very much like my own life. There was a man in a place not unlike this place, and in a time not unlike this time, who built a wall, a tower, around himself. And as time went on, he placed every stone in that wall. It grew larger and taller and taller, and on the top, he put lots of glass and embedded it in the stone so that nobody could get over it. And then he sat inside that tower and he felt safe. And from time to time, people would come by and, and yell over the, the top to come out and to play and to talk. But he didn't feel like he could. And he stayed inside that tower for so long that he forgot what it was like on the outside. And once in a while, somebody would come by and throw flowers over the side. And one day when they did that, he, he slowly went over and picked up the flowers and smelled them and remembered that there was a world out there. And he, and he climbed to the top of the tower, but by the time he had gotten there, they were gone. And he sat back down in his tower and he cried and he felt very alone. And one day the aloneness was too much. It was too painful, and he cried out, God, please help me. And a great light began to shine inside the tower, and it grew and grew so bright that it burst the tower into to rubble, and he was free. And he was so excited about it all, he ran out to all the people that, that were there and told them about it, his tower and told them what he'd done and what had happened to him. He was really excited, and for a while they listened. 
And sometimes he'd get up on the rubble of his tower and he'd tell people what he had learned about this God and about this light and what could happen for them. And pretty soon, the people started going away. They'd heard what he had to say. And pretty soon, all the people were gone. And he sat down on one of the bigger stones and he cried and he thought, I'm still alone. And I don't understand, God, what, what's happening? And the light shined again. And it said, look at what you're sitting on. The stone that you built out of pride. And another one over here of sloth. And another over here of resentment. And he looked at the stones and he realized that they were his. And the light said, together, you and I can move the stones, and I'll help you. And sometimes they would go and they would search through the stones, and they'd look at them, and they'd throw away the ones that he didn't want to keep. And some days he'd go around and talk to people. And sometimes he'd go up to other people's towers and throw flowers over the top. And then a wonderful story. All right, that's as spiritual as I get. <clears throat> now I'm going to tell you about me. A little over 36 years ago, I was born into a military family on a military base. My father was a pilot in the Army. My mother was an officer's wife. I have two older brothers and a younger sister. I'm a lot like the rest of you. I, um, I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father drank, and I can say my father was an alcoholic. To not be able to say that is to join the, the denial of my family and the disease. I, um, I'm not going to say that you're an alcoholic if you ask me, but I may know. If you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, you're, you're probably a duck. And it's important for me to be able to recognize the disease. And my father was an alcoholic, and he never, um, he never came to terms with that. And he died a few years ago. My, um, my brothers both used, and uh, I, I believe are addicted. And my sister is the only one that, that doesn't use, because when she does, she... She tends to get run out of bars um, with guns and stuff like that. So she doesn't drink. Um, <laughs> and growing up in an alcoholic home meant that I grew up in a home where there was a lot of loss, where there were uh, things that were necessary to, to live that we didn't have, things like food and clothes and shoes and um, peace and safety. My father got violent when he was drunk. And um, there was a lot of physical abuse, and I'm also a survivor of sexual abuse. I don't know all the um, details of that. I, um, and, and, you know, we don't have to know if we're survivors of sexual abuse. If the, the resulting or consequential behavior is there, we can probably figure out that it happened. Um, the result of that was sexual addiction and a lot of promiscuity and and acting out, and I'll, and I'll talk about that in a little while. When I want to tell you about the, I started drinking, or my first drink was probably before I was two years old, um, with a sip of beer and a and a an olive from a martini there, and I I love to get sips from the people grown-ups and it and it made me feel a part of things and I felt real special and I really wanted to be special I wanted to be a part of things you know Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a forum it's given me an opportunity to be a part of and a place where I can I can uh, be heard I was I was talking to my lover before just before we came down and and I thought I said, you know, my voice sounds different when I'm on the microphone, and I realize that the reason that is, is that I don't have to, I don't have to be heard so much because I know you're going to hear me. I'm not so intent on making you hear me. 
Okay. Lucille? <laughs> really? I thought it was Lucille. Anyway. Anyway, I'm real grateful that y'all listen to me. Of course, you have to. <laughs> if you get up and leave, I'm going to know who you are. Um, part of my story is really sad, and part of it isn't. I, uh, my family was very intent on how we looked. Was very intent on creating the outside, and they spent a lot of energy, and I've spent a lot of energy getting my outsides to look right. And because of the disease and the progression of the disease, I lost that ability to even make the outside look good. My insides and my outsides matched pretty good when I got sober. I was a mess. Um, I had my first drunk when I was 12 years old. Now I didn't mess around. Okay, I got a bottle of pink champagne and I skipped school with some friends and I drank as much as I could and I got as drunk as I could and I blacked out. Something vaguely sexual happened. I came to, I threw up, I went home and I got in trouble. Now that is my story. Every time I drank that was true. Every time I drank, I drank as much as I could. I drank to black out. Something sexual had to have happened. I'm just sure. And I would come to, I would throw up, and I'd be in trouble. Every time. Now, you'd think that I would have stopped. And I swore when I was 12 years old that I would never drink pink, pink champagne again. And I didn't for a long time. I, um, I'm going to talk about drugs in my story, and I hope that doesn't offend you. If it does, that's okay. I probably am going to offend just about everybody in the room before I get finished because I, I was a scapegoat in my family, and, and as a scapegoat, I am expert at pissing people off. So if I offend you, I, I'm glad. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I still got it. The next time I, when I was about 12, I heard a guy speak at my school, and I think that this is significant, too. He told me, he told all of us in, in, in this big auditorium that he was a drug addict, and he ran drugs, he shot heroin, and he talked about how he was going around and telling people as part of his recovery from that. And I was really struck by this man. I was really struck by his story. And I remember thinking that when I grew up, I really would like to, to work with kids and, and help children find um, their place in the world. And I thought he was wonderful. And I made a decision that I was never going to be an addict like that. He really scared me. It was, it was terrifying to me. And I, I heard stories from my parents about people who used these drugs and they could never stop. And if they stopped, it would kill them. And if they kept using, it would kill them. So I didn't want to be an addict. I know none of you did. I know that when the teacher said, what do you want to be when you grow up, firemen, policemen, or addict, you did not raise your hand for addict. That didn't happen. It didn't happen for me either. But I made a decision never to use heroin. And I didn't. <laughs> that's the only thing I didn't use. Of course, I have this phobia against needles, and I guess that served me. It saved my life. But I used just about everything else. When I was um, 13, 14 years old, I bought, um, I did my first drug. I did some acid by myself. It was fine. <laughs> then I learned to smoke pot. And I, um, I remember about that time I, I drank some gin. And a big tall glass, I was babysitting these people, I had some gin. They said, help yourself. Fourteen years old. I drank it, and I drank the whole thing. And I mean, that makes sense, doesn't Big glass, big gin, drink it. And I got, of course, I got terribly sick. Something sexual happened. I blacked out. I came to, I threw up, and I was in trouble. But <laughs> I made a decision not to drink gin ever again, and I have not touched a drop of gin since. <laughs> Let's see. 
by by the time um, I was 16 years old, I, I had this problem, and and I didn't think it was a problem then. I'm a, a master at escaping, and I by the time I was 16 years old, I had run away from home 11 times. That's I was a busy girl. I ran away a lot. I left. Um, I, one time I ran right to the police station. I knew I was going to end up there anyway. I thought I'd just get it over with. Um, I had been in jail several times. I arrested for selling drugs and for juvenile delinquency. I had been put in juvenile home. Uh, I had a boyfriend. I want to tell you I was involved with boys for the first eight years of my um, sexual activity. And I do not recall ever thinking about girls, except that I was very fond of them. I, mean, I don't remember thinking about them sexually, but I did. I did about boys, and I and I became sexually active um, when I was 14. Um, I lost, but I, you know what? I lost my virginity when I was 15, and I was doing acid, and I said no. I said no, and. It didn't matter, and I didn't realize till I'd been sober for quite some time that I had been, I'd been raped. And it was so weird the 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 way that I could perceive my life. I blamed myself. I thought it was my fault. Um, but I've, I've learned better about some things, and that's one of them. Um, I really only saw myself as a sexual object. I only could connect with people sexually. When I met you, what the first thing I decided was whether I wanted to sleep with you or not. That was my the first question in my mind, and I proceeded from there. Um, but I did have this boyfriend when I was 15 and, and 16, and we ran off to see America um, with 27 cents in our pockets, and uh, <laughs> we planned it for a long time. And uh, <laughs> people would say things like, I think I'm going to run away from home. And I'd say, oh, goody, take me. It was like just something I did a whole lot of. Um, as you can guess, school was not very important to me. School kind of got away, got in the way of my drug use. And um, I skipped a lot of school and got kicked out of school a lot for drug use and for truancy and for acting out and telling teachers off and stuff like that, because I also had a big mouth. Um, I was very, very angry. I was very, very frightened. And the way that I deal with my fear a lot is to come out fighting. Um, when I, after I got out of juvenile home, I was allowed to quit high school. And I thought that that was great. Drug, sex, and rock and roll was my way of life. I couldn't wait to get out of my house. I had to wait a year. I had to wait till I was 17, otherwise I'd get put back in jail. But I did. I, I spent that year working, and, and um, I'm a stubborn, stubborn girl, real stubborn. And I, no matter what people told me, I was going to do it my way, and I thought they were wrong. My father was, uh, I'll tell you how my father was a little bit. You know Archie Bunker? Well, my father is a whole lot like that man, a little bit brighter, but not much. And he, he, was, he was more attractive, I must say. My father is a very attractive man. But he had the same kind of attitudes about things. So I was anti-war, anti-military, anti-government, anti-school, anti-dad, anti-everything. I didn't like it. It was all crap. The only reason that they had high schools was to, was to keep the kids in because they didn't want to take care of them. And that was the idea I had about school. So I have lost a tremendous amount as far as education goes because of those attitudes and, and what I thought was really happening. I did leave school at 16, quit school, went to work, um, moved out when I was 17 years old. As soon as I turned 17, I was gone, and I moved in with my boyfriend. Now, my boyfriend, the musician, <laughs> we had such a stable life. We moved in with, um, with friends. The very first night that we slept together, he beat me up, and he did that for a whole year. And at the end of that year, I married him. 
makes sense, doesn't it? And then one of the reasons I did that is that my father told me it wasn't a good idea, and they told me we couldn't make it and we couldn't do it. Well, don't tell me I can't do something. Yes, I'm going to do it. And I did. Um, right up to the very end, my dad was going, you can turn, you can back out of this. Three months after that, I, we married, I left him. Um, I didn't leave him because he beat me. I, I left him because I found out he was sleeping with other girls. And that pissed me off. Um, but I did leave him, and I think there's a, there's a whole syndrome attached to being beaten that we blame ourselves. We think that if I just hadn't said that, if I had said the right thing, or I hadn't been so mad, so it's real difficult to, to separate out what's my responsibility and what's theirs. And the fact that I was able to leave that situation when it seemed so normal to me, when it seemed like that's the way things were, the fact that I left that is a miracle. And I'm not quite sure. Maybe my stubbornness. Um, I don't know. I vowed at that time not to be a drug addict because I realized that there was a little bit of drug addict to me. I was doing a, I was doing acid and quaaludes and speed and all this other stuff all the time, and I liked to do it by myself. And I didn't want to be a drug addict anymore. And I had this concept that, like the guy when I was 12, if I didn't use heroin, I wasn't a junkie. And if I didn't drink gin, I didn't have a problem with scotch, right? And if I, if I just smoked marijuana, that'd be fine because it was an herb. It was natural. It is safe. No problems with marijuana. I can stop anytime I want to. Um, I just don't want to, okay? I smoke, I smoke pot daily, but I decided that I wanted to clean up my act when I left this, this fella. And, um, I'm, I ended up moving home with my parents. Well, I went to California, actually, because I thought that's where it was happening. And I looked around, and there were like three million women that looked just like I did, and I couldn't deal. I just couldn't deal. Um, and besides, and you know, there's someone here from California, but I lived in this place that two months after I had moved there, I looked out the window and I saw a mountain. Now, that mountain hadn't been there before because it was also gray and everything, and I thought, there's something wrong with this picture. It was... <laughs> anyway, my, I lived with my brother who's a motorcycle fella. Um, he rides a Harley, and if any of you know anything about Harley riders, they, they eat, sleep, and shit motorcycles, and he did. <laughs> and uh, all we did all day long was, was speed and, and ride that motorcycle up and down the boulevard. And um, it was a great time, but my brother is also um, violent and um, abusive and, and actually attempted to sell me to one of the guys at the uh, employment agency so he could get a job. So I decided I would leave. <clears throat> and I knew that if I if I left everything I'd be okay so I went back to my parents and I learned how to drink like a lady that meant I got dressed up you know and I went into the bar with enough money to buy one drink and I picked out the guy I wanted to buy me the second drink and he did and then I let him buy me drinks all night long and then I would go to the hotel of my choice and um, sleep with them. And I really thought that I wasn't a whore. And I didn't consider myself a prostitute, except it had to be good scotch and it had to be a nice hotel. And I would get up in the morning before he came to, I'd come to before dawn, throw my clothes on, and get the fuck out of there. Because I didn't want to ever see that person again, and I couldn't stand the sight of myself, and I'd drive home and swearing I would never do that again. And I'd get home and I'd pass out and I'd come to and I would crawl to the bathroom and throw my guts out and throw up. And you know, if, are any of you great thrower-uppers? <laughs> I was a great thrower-upper. You know, it's a, it's a skill. You need, you need a big glass of water so that you can keep throwing something up because it's going to come up anyway. You might as well be throwing something up. And you just sort of lay there by the toilet because you know it's going to happen again. You know, and you kind of pass out, and then you go, oh, come to, got to throw up some more. And I'd do that, and I'd swear while I was down there on my knees at that toilet that I was never, ever going to do that again, ever. 
And then I'd, I'd go in the bed, and I'd pass out, and I'd come to a little while later. And I'd smoke a little pot, you know, just to take the edge off. And then I'd smoke more, and by 4 or 5 o'clock that evening, I'd start drinking again. And I'd get all dressed up and go to the bar and drink like a lady and do it all over again. And I did that for about a year, year and a half. I'm about 19 now. And I decided that there was something wrong. There was really something wrong because a friend of mine said that she had, had just gotten this fur coat. And her and I used to go out and we used to pick up men together. And um, she got a fur coat and she got all this money and she said that I could too. That I could start making money at, at the game that we played. And I was all set to do that and I just... The night that I was supposed to go do that, I couldn't. I, I couldn't do it, but I knew that because I knew that something was wrong. It was against every value that I had. So what I did was I joined the army. <laughs> now remember, <laughs> I was anti-war, <laughs> and and I did it drunk. I swear I was drunk. I remember standing there being sworn in in Detroit, Michigan, thinking, what the fuck? I'd be in drunk as shit. I know it was, but I was going to go, I was going to go um, meet interesting people and see interesting places. And I was going to get out is what I was going to do and things were going to be better if I could just go someplace else. And... Um, I did that for a little while. I did. I went through basic training. Now, I loved basic training. It was like it was in my family. I could do that shit. I mean, I can stand up straight. I can march, and I can shine my shoes, and they're in perfect order. Trust me, they are perfect order. And so that was pretty easy. Um, what was real interesting is I met some women there that were uh, they were amazing women. I saw one walk by me at one time and. And I kind of had to lay down. <laughs> I don't know why I swooned, but I did. But I, 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 met, I met my first lesbians in the military, and I hung out with them. I thought they were great. Being the sexually liberated woman that I was, I thought that this was sort of interesting, and I could check this part out, and I decided that perhaps... I was bisexual, and um, but it was very difficult for me when we when I got out of basic training. I drank through basic training. A good drunk can find a way, and I did. I drank all the way through. I was sick a lot. I used to walk down to the infirmary, and I'd walk a little few paces and turn around and throw up green bile. You know how we do, and walk a few more paces, and that that was part of my military career. I um, when they moved me from basic training to school, I kind of lost it. I really lost it. I um I was drinking so much at that time and drinking and blacking out so much that people were following me around, calling me by different names. Men were sending me love letters, you know, to Sally and to Jane, and I never saw them before in my life, and it got real scary for me. And I was in, I had insomnia. I was an insomniac from the time I was little. Oh, I forgot to tell you how I used to wet the bed. Well, anyway. That's another story for another time. <clears throat> but I would sit up all night, and I was losing my mind because I couldn't sleep. And um, I was drinking so much I was having delirium tremens when I, when I, in the morning after I drank. But I didn't know that's what they were. I went to the, um, the medical people. I decided that maybe I needed a little mental health check because I was feeling so bad, and I wanted to get out of the Army, and I'd ask them to let me out, and they, they were working on that. Um, it was a time when that was possible back in the early 70s. The war was over and everything. and um, it, it really had gotten to be too much for me, because I went to class one day, and the guy said, this is your teletype writer. You will guard this teletype writer with your life. <laughs> and I thought, where am I? This is just... I got up. I went to the mental health place. I, <laughs> and I, they, asked, they asked me how I was doing. And, and I told them about these little friends I had in the shower in the morning. The little water sprites. 
You know, <laughs> the ones that we all have, uh, uh, they kept me company. And, and the lady was so sweet. She was sitting there and she looked at me and she said, could you sit here, please? <laughs> and they, they put me in the psych ward that day um, and detoxed me. Now, I don't remember a lot of that because they put me on Thorazine and, and my head was on my my chest most of the time I couldn't get my eyes open but I do remember how much I shook that I had to have coffee and a half a cup and cigarettes other people let my cigarettes and um, I went through detox there and they told me something that was really very important uh, I didn't think so at the time but it was they told me I was an alcoholic they told me that that if I didn't stop drinking it was going to kill me and then they gave me a bottle of Librium, and they sent me home. <laughs> and I took that Librium, and I forgot that I was an alcoholic. I forgot that they said to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought that what I... Now, there was a part of me that remembered that I had a little bitty drinking problem, so I needed to control my drinking. I started controlling my drinking. And... Uh, I did that librarian. I spent the next five years doing uh, um, my maintenance program with Librium. I would do that for a couple of weeks, eat as much as I possibly could, finish my prescription out, and kind of burn myself out. You know how we do, just kind of um, where everything's kind of a dull roar. And then I'd start feeling again, so I would have to drink. And I would drink until I just was too sick to drink anymore and things were okay. And then I'd go back and get another script for Librium. And I did that for five years. I also, at that time, married um, a very nice man who... Um, I, I, I thought a lot about him on the way, on the way here, and I'm not quite sure. Um, I have a lot of sadness and loss over that. Um, I know that my alcoholism was the reason that that marriage ended and the little bit thing about being a lesbian, but um, <laughs> it's kind of sad, you know, it was the dream, I, I, had the, I wanted the dream, I wanted to be married and have a house and, and children, and not a lot of children, okay, just maybe one later on, but I, I did want children and um, it didn't, it didn't happen. Um, we were married three years and um, I went to the doctor again to get my prescription filled and he wouldn't give it to me. And it was devastating that he sent me to a therapist and a therapist helped me. She said that my problem was that I was just a lesbian and I needed to come out and everything would be okay. So I did. I did that, and I got a little girlfriend, and I lived in this little town in Michigan, and I was related to half the town by marriage, so we had to leave. We did have to leave, and what I did is I packed everything up into my U-Haul truck, and I put my van on the back, and my dogs and my cats, and the little girlfriend, and um, drove to Atlanta to be a lesbian. <laughs> I, I had researched this now, okay? I read all the books and I found out where there was political people. I decided to stop being an armchair radical feminist. I, you know, I, as, a, as a married woman, I had let my hair grow under my arms and on my legs and I was being a feminist, you know, but I wanted to put it into action. So I chose Atlanta because of the Atlanta Lesbian Feminist Alliance and I went there. Now, when I got there, they, um, they didn't quite know what to make of me. Because I had long hair, and I wore makeup, and I had my nails, except for a couple. Um, Never you mind, honey. Huh? 
Anyway, I also wore skirts, and I had this little girlfriend that was just as butch as she could be. But what I wanted to be—I wanted to be a lesbian, damn it! So what I did was I cut my hair off, and I cut my nails, and I bought boys' clothing, and I put on Birkenstocks, and I was butch. <laughs> yeah. And they laughed at me just like you are. <laughs> but I kept trying. I really did keep trying. Now, my, my using changed at this point. Um, it, what happened was that the insanity of the disease was full-fledged. I really, really was not sane any longer. I'd forgotten anything that I, that I knew about. Me needing not to drink. I'd forgotten everything about that. I tried to throw away everything that had been important to me before. I didn't want any reminder of my past life. I, um, I became a vegetarian. I lived in the women's community. Um, I, I, um, had, had yard sales to sell my Tupperware in my crock pot. Um, and I, and I did do that. Actually, I did that so that I could pay my rent because I started having a little problem with working. Now, I didn't tell you what I, the kind of work I was doing at that time. Being, um, again, I was uneducated. I was a bartender. Makes sense, doesn't it? Five years bartending where I was, and I moved to Atlanta and got a bartending job. But I always drank on the job. And I had a little problem keeping track of money, and, and they don't like that. They don't like that at all. And I really didn't like to work so hard or so late, and they didn't like that either. And I really thought that I knew how to run the bars better, and they really didn't like that. And I got fired from my job in Atlanta um, and uh, couldn't work after that. I... Um, I know now that I went into withdrawal again, and I didn't have the resources to take care of myself. I didn't know what was going on, and I and I pretty much lost my mind. I um. So there I was, being butch, um, being a lesbian, trying this this the alpha lesbian feminist alliance, and started learning the rhetoric. God, I loved how those women talked. God, they could talk. It was great. So I started learning how to talk like they did. And if you if you ever have a problem with thinking that you can't do this Alcoholics Anonymous because everybody says the same thing and you never really want to sound like anybody else, yes, you can. You've been sounding like everybody else. I sure did. I um I really thought that I was a... a like the height of my career, they um they gave me a job working for them because I learned how to talk good and I and I and I tried. I wanted to be a part of it. Um, so I was working for them and I didn't. I had to earn my own money by fundraising. I started dancing again. I. Been a dancer um, most of my life, and I started dancing again. I was a Middle Eastern dancer. That's belly dancing. That's what I did. I did it uh, for women, and it was part of my spiritual. Um, it was part of my religious beliefs. It really wasn't. I'll tell you why. It's because I, I found a religion that I really like. Now I didn't talk about my religious stuff, and I need to. My grandfather was a minister in the Church of Christ. He lived in Arkansas and he was a circuit speaker and we'd go around and listen to him preach, you know, at all his, I've got all his sermons. He's, he's passed on now and I'm sure he's would roll over in his grave if he would listen to me, but he, I, um, he was incredible, and I wanted to be a preacher. 
I thought it'd be great, and I forgot to watch the time. I couldn't be a preacher because they tell me girls don't do that. And I really didn't understand. I felt so left out of it. But I wanted to be a part of it. I got baptized, and and my dad was that uh, atheist agnostic. I don't know what the hell he was. He didn't either. And my mother, my mother didn't care about any of it at all. So leaving religion, my family was quite true. But I get religion every few years. I got it from Aunt Granddaughter when I left the church because I thought they were hypocrites. And then I joined, um, I was a part of the Jesus Freak Movement. Um, I met them all in park one day and we were all hard and they called my sister and we hugged and everything. I loved it. My mother thought that I was going through a phase. My mother thinks I'm still in a phase. Um, I am um, for a while. I thought Jesus was a spaceman. And um, it was just stand out on my balcony and say, "Come get me! Come get me! I'm ready." Um, I was real fully expecting a spaceship to come down and, and get me out of here. Um, what else did I do? I didn't believe in God for a while, and I believed a lot and I've searched uh, all my life for something that made sense. I really wanted the robot. I really wanted somebody to tell me exactly how it was going to be. I wanted to say that I really wanted rules, and, and none of it made sense. And when I, when I came to the, the theology, to the people, I got very confused. I thought a lot of blacks and whites. I thought that it was either one way or another. And if somebody wasn't exactly what we said they were, exactly. Didn't follow through what they preached, and I thought they were warriors. I couldn't believe them anymore. If I go looking for somebody else, Al-Anon maybe, it was a lesbian Al-Anon maybe, and they talked about something called the, the merry-go-round of denial, and I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard the concept of denial, that we forget what's happening. Now, I knew I forgot things, because I couldn't remember your name. I knew that. I was in a brownout the last three, four years of my using, and what that is is where you smoke dope all day long just so you maintain, and you can't remember what's going on from one minute to the next. It's kind of where I wanted to maintain. I couldn't get high anymore. I really couldn't get high. I never felt good when I used anymore. I used because I had to, because if I didn't use, I felt so fucking bad. So we went to the Al-Anon meeting, they talked about denial, and something magical happened, some, a miracle happened. I started applying what they were saying to me. I heard the truth about myself, denial broke, and I think two things need to happen for recovery. One is, denial has to break. I've got to see the truth, and I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> And the second part of that is the hope came in. They said there was a solution. 
there was a place for me to go. I didn't have any place else to go, but there was a place for me to go, and people wanted me there. So those two things happened for me that night. And I realized that I had, and this is the reason I'll talk about my drug use so much, is I realized that I had just switched drug after drug after drug, and I went from the drug alcohol to the drug marijuana to the drug speed back to the drug alcohol. And I'd done that over and over again, convinced that if I could put that drink down for one day, I wasn't an alcoholic, but I could smoke pot. And I did that 13 years daily. And I realized I had been controlling my alcohol use with marijuana. And that saved my life. Understanding that saved my life. And that's why I share it. And I know there's a lot of controversy in Alcoholics Anonymous right now about talking about drugs. And I heard this man, I heard this about this story about this man who says that if you have a problem with my talking about drugs, I want you to go home and go into your medicine cabinet and throw all your drugs away. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and it was the first place I'd ever heard people talking honestly. It was the first place I ever, people said the truth and I could hear it. And I went I had picked up a white chip, and the day that I did that, something picked me up and carried me across the room. And I came back and sat down in my chair, and I started crying. And I and I cried ever since. And I wasn't a girl who cried. I stopped crying because I was never going to let anybody see me hurt. And I've been hurting in these meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous for over nine years, out loud, snot nose, messy hurting with all of you. Now, I'm not one of those people that goes around saying that recovery is really wonderful and I love it and it's so good and, and isn't it grand and I just can't. I can't. And when you all do that, I, I get real nervous. I, I get suspicious is what I get because my insides don't feel so serene. They don't. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous without a, a damn thing that was worthwhile. My brain was a mess. I was insane. I, you know, I hadn't talked to a man in a year. I didn't go into grocery stores. I didn't watch TV. I didn't read the papers. You know, these, these um, push-button TVs and all this newfangled stuff, I didn't know anything about it. I had gotten rid of the world. So my getting into recovery was discovering what the world was and learning about being a person. Because I started using so young and because I was using addictively right from the beginning, I didn't learn anything about how to be with people. I didn't learn how to be a person. I didn't know really what I thought that wasn't against something. I was in reaction to everything around me. The political beliefs that I held as a radical lesbian feminist separatist witch <laughs> what those what those were was a, a, it was my my fear turned into politics, and I went out and screamed at the world instead of knowing that I was terrified and I didn't know what to think or believe in. So coming into this program, then I had to build a person from the from literally the ground up that I didn't have any resources. I still couldn't work the first nine months of my sobriety. I got involved with that woman I was telling you about two months into the program. And I want to say something about that because we have this injunction about newcomers and sleeping with newcomers. I could not have survived if I hadn't gotten involved with her. I didn't know how to survive as a separate person. I couldn't work, so she, she took care of me. She fed me. She gave me a place to live. She saved my life. So for whatever we can say about how that's sick and that's not good, it saved my life. At a year and a half of sobriety, I, um, that relationship ended. 
And um, what I did during that first year and a half is I went to meetings every single day. I was usually in meetings two and three times a day. I got me a sponsor. I got me a big sponsor. I knew me. You know, I knew me. I needed someone bigger than me. I needed someone meaner than me. And she was. Um, she had like 20 years of sobriety. She, you know, long, sober longer than God. And she'd point her finger at me. I just hated that shit. She'd point her finger at me and, and, and tell me what to do. And she started telling me what to do when I first got in the program. And you can imagine how well I took that. And I hear people say, they'll come up to me and they'll say, oh, that they told me what to do and I'm an adult and everything. I just don't understand why they're not treating me with respect. And it's like, if she hadn't told me what to do, I couldn't have done it. I didn't know how to eat. I didn't know when to go to bed. I didn't know how to pass out. I didn't know how to go to bed. I didn't know how to make plans. I didn't know how to work. I didn't know how to do anything. And she told me. She told me. And I thank God for her. I thank God for Nazi AAs. I really do. You can well imagine that I've also been one. I'm I'm not so much anymore. Um, I hate the rep, and I don't do it well. People get so mad at me. But um, I don't know. Where am I supposed to stop? Do you know what time I'm supposed to stop? Five more minutes? i got to get way sober here. Um, I, I like to talk about what my my recovery has been like, and I like to talk about what it's really been like, so that you know I can show you that it is not an easy process. That and it is a process. That it is not about bluebirds and pulling back the bed covers in the morning, and it's about making. <laughs> It's about, it's about making a lot of mistakes. And I have really made my share. As I said, when I started out, I slept with the wrong people. I slept with them. I had this little sponsoree. She was so cute. And when she got 30 days of sobriety, I went to bed with her. Now, they say not to do that. <laughs> but I did. And... That relationship nearly killed me, and it, but it lasted for a year and a half. And again, I'm, I was sexually addicted, and um, I couldn't stop. I couldn't give up that feeling. I just couldn't. And I sat in meetings, and I just cried and screamed and carried on for a year and a half. And I finally stopped that relationship. And you know what made me stop it? I had to act out even worse. I, I knocked her around in front of all the women that I knew in recovery. And see, that puts me at about nearly three years of sobriety. That's what I did. On my third birthday, I was picked up by the police and put in jail for uh, forgery. I um, <clears throat> I forged this, this license plate because I thought the rules were wrong. I didn't have the money and I thought the rules were wrong. And, and, you know, I, and, I, and I'm still like that a lot. That I think the rules are wrong, so I try to rewrite them to fit my to fit my agenda. And uh, sitting in that jail, I realized that jails are wonderful for that, aren't they? <laughs> oh God! I um I was able to support myself. I I started living alone. I I want to tell you after after that first relationship broke up, I. I didn't have a place to live. I had lost my job. I didn't have any money, and my car was broke. At a year and a half of sobriety, there I was. Things hadn't gotten better for me. I hadn't even gotten much better. But I didn't drink. I didn't drug. And people gave me a place to live, and I learned about um, what a sense of humor God has. Because um, I, I, every two weeks I'd be biting my nails, not knowing what to do. Couldn't really go out and get a job. I was so dysfunctional. And um, got to give me another place to live, and then another place, and another place. So I was basically homeless, but people in Alcoholics Anonymous picked me up, let me come live with them. 
And I, what happened at the end of that two months is that uh, he gave me a house. Now, this is God's house, because there's no way I could have gotten it on my own. It's a house I could move into that I didn't have any money. And it didn't have any water. And it didn't have a stove and a refrigerator, but it had wooden floors and big windows and a fireplace. And I was in heaven. I thought it was incredible. What a gift. And every time I walk in the house, I remember what a gift that I've been given. I started a cleaning service. You know, you all say clean house. So I started cleaning service. And... um <laughs> And I cleaned houses for the next four years, and I, I made enough money sometimes to live on, sometimes not, and I and I continued to explore. Um, I, what I did with my with religion, I want to tell you that, is that I put it aside, and I started discovering what this higher power was about, what a power that was bigger than me looked like, felt like, sounded like, tasted like, said, did, I did. It was what an exciting journey that's been, and I still am am I'm awe. I'm in awe of that power in my life, and that I spent so much time running around trying to think it through, or have a religion tell me what it was, or having people tell me what it was, um, trying to manipulate it and control it. Because my God, when I came in the program, was my size, and I controlled it. And, and to discover this power in my life and how much love there is for me. You know, I hear people say that God forgives them. My God doesn't have to. That's not even in the vocabulary. It's not necessary. I'm, I'm a child of God. And as such, a, I'm, God doesn't forgive me. He knows exactly who, what, where I am. Um, I tried to stay out of the counseling field. People kept coming and talking to me, and, and that happened a lot. People were always coming and talking to me. And I, I, didn't, I had done some counseling and, and learned some things when I was, with, when I was drinking and, and thought I wanted to be a counselor, and my sponsor told me that I, I didn't need to be doing that that everybody wants to be a counselor when they get sober and to go do something else. So I started cleaning houses, and for a while I thought I'd be an artist. I went to school. And through, I, I didn't mention that I went back and I got my GED, and I started back to college. And I, I had meant to go through and finish college, but my drinking took the rest of that away. But I went to art school for a while. And that was fun, and then that stopped. Um, the funds ran out all of a sudden, and I decided that was God's will. And my business, my cleaning business picked up. But then a school came into play for me that has really, it's been wonderful, and I, I jumped at it. it was, I went to seminary, and um, there was a seminary in New York that was called, that was interfaith, and it wasn't a particular religion. We studied all religions, and and I was, went through that school, and I graduated. It was the first place I ever graduated from. And I was also ordained, so I'm an ordained minister. Isn't that a hoot? <laughs> it's also scary. It is so scary because I think I'm supposed to be. That's why I'm so nervous about the spiritual shit. Because I think I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a certain way. You know how ministers are. They smile all the time and they say, there, God is with you, darling. And I'm not like that. I'm not. It's like, just don't throw up on my shoes, okay? Um, <laughs> anyway. Okay. Um. I I went I started being asked to go and speak places and do the kind of work that I do like the meditation this morning which is just uh, such a gift for me because I feel so much a part of what happens and I can feel that power in the room working and oh what an incredible thing that I get to do it's real I'm so blessed and I um I went down to Houston and I was nearly five years sober at that point and I met Rebecca. And um, I had been single. I'd been living alone. I hadn't had a relationship for over a year. I went to ACOA and Al-Anon and 
been in therapy and I was ready. I was well. <laughs> and so was she, okay? <laughs> what was it, three months? Three, something like that. Three, four months after we met, we moved. she moved up to Atlanta. We didn't know each other from Adam. She has this great telephone voice. I was so in love, but she moved in with me into this house I'd been living in for years by myself, and um, we started learning how to have a relationship, and that's one of the ways to learn. Um, relationships, <laughs> relationships take a beating sometimes. When when I was single, they I I beat them up. You know, I was single because I had to learn to be with myself, and that's true. I learned to be with myself by myself and then I had to learn to be with myself in a relationship and that's it's really it's really been wonderful to do that it's been incredible it's been painful we've been together now over four years and um, I, I thank God for that every day and sometimes I um I'm trying not to break up with her on a weekly basis um, <laughs> We have, you know, we both have a lot of the same kind of story, and um, we didn't get to Alcoholics Anonymous because we were well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we work on it. We work on it. We stay together, and it's incredible, and to me, just incredible, the, the gift that that is and the joy that I get from it. Um, I also got a job, a real-life kind of go-to-work-every-day, 40-hour job, and um I know, I know, but I'm, I'm a counselor in the field of addiction, and <laughs> I, I feel like I, I, I'm there because that's where I'm needed, and um, I, I'm, I have a gift for that. I have a gift for connecting with people, and that's where I can use it, and I'm, sometimes I'm embarrassed about that. Sometimes it's really tough to be in a meeting and be there for myself and not play counselor and diagnose everybody in the meeting. Um, but it's really wonderful because I had to grow a lot. I really had to grow a lot in order to be able to to be a part of other people's healing process. I have to be healing myself, and it's it's been great for me. This last year, um, some things have happened that, and who was it? Somebody said recently here at the roundup that every year you get up and you say. I think it was Rhonda. Every year you get up at, at your birthday and you say, this has really been a bad year. Well, I can do, I can relate. Um, this has been a real tough year. I did get to go, this last year I did get to go to New Orleans and tell my story, and that was real wonderful. But I also lost my job. I was also diagnosed with chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome, so I, I have a chronic health problem. I don't get to run like a bat out of hell anymore. I really have to learn how to sit still. And it's teaching me. It is teaching me. Um, it, it was hard losing my job, but I got another one I, two weeks before Christmas in a recession in a field that is falling apart. I got a job. And if that isn't God, I don't know what is. And um, I love my work. And I got, I didn't tell you about my dogs and my cats and my birds. They're home and I miss them right now. Um, it, it I don't know. If any, if I can get sober and stay sober and heal and become a person from the inside out, anybody can. And I believe that. And that's if I have a message, that's it. You know, that that you can do this thing no matter how hard it is. You don't have to drink, you don't have to use, you don't have to blow your brains out. You can fuck up and still keep going, and it'll be all right. And you will get better. I've got better. I am better. And um, I'm pretty proud of myself today. I, I have values that I can live by. I'm pretty consistent. I know a pretty good idea of what it is that I feel and what it is that I think and what it is that I'm going to do in a given situation. And that's incredible. That's... um. That's better than anything I've ever experienced anywhere. And I, I, y'all gave that to me. People just like you gave that to me. Without you, I couldn't be here. So, thank you very much for listening. 
you all really are very warm, loving people. I was just struck by how friendly everybody was. Everybody spoke to me when I walked past them. And you've got something very special here. And I've really enjoyed being here. And thank you for listening. Thank you, Allison.